Welcome to the Plain Sight podcast hosted by Invisible. Invisible Technologies is a fascinating company. Uh, we essentially make complex business problems disappear. So we partner with you, we figure out what your operations are, we figure out what your processes are, we figure out what your team doesn't like to do, and we basically do that better, faster, cheaper. Uh, but this isn't specifically about what we do, it's also the philosophy behind why we do it. So this show really gets into what makes Invisible tick. Uh, who are the key players at Invisible? Who are the key players outside of Invisible who enjoy our work? Um, what are all the things that are going on inside of Invisible? What a podcast does, it allows you to find out things that you normally wouldn't be able to find out. So it's like a fireside chat that's basically decentralized and anybody can listen to it at all times. So we really invite you to uh, listen and subscribe if you really like these episodes. And as always, you can reach out to anybody on the Invisible team. Uh, our website is invisible.co uh, and we're happy to have you here. Welcome to the Plain Sight Podcast. My guest today is Hans Anderson, and he is the head of product design and all communication designs at Invisible Technologies. So welcome to the show. Hey, man. Thank you. Yeah. It's a privilege. So let's start off right at the bat uh, with a deep question. Uh, what is the essential element of good design? Uh, <laughs> well, so great question. Um, you know, I'm torn. I'm torn between clarity and um, consistency, but I think consistency serves clarity. It's it's a question of 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 communicating one idea from one place to another head. You know, if you're talking about product design, it, it that communication is really between an object and a user, right? If it's communications design, it's almost a rhetorical question. Um, there's an idea in one person's head or a group of people's head, and uh, it needs to land accurately, reliably in someone else's or some other group of people's heads, you know. So I think it's clarity. Um, but consistency is is the chief attribute of good design over time that will facilitate clarity. Yeah. Mm. Um, it reminds me so much of doing podcasts as well, because doing podcasts, the, the essential element for doing a podcast. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that go into it in terms of the production quality and all everything else, but the key ingredient is consistency of just um, scheduling the, the podcast, recording the podcast, publishing the podcast, editing the podcast, uh, all these different things and, and to do it on a weekly setting. And that's what most people, the average podcast length is essentially nine episodes uh, because most people give up after about nine episodes. Um, but if you go past that, you can, it's just like, it's all about consistency, consistency, and consistency. Uh, and, and podcasting also has that sort of communications design as well. Uh, except it's more of a, as, as we are going to find out, it's sort of, sort of like a tangent and, and, uh, we go off into places. The main reason people listen to podcasts is they find out things that they would normally never find out through this sort of unscripted conversation. Um, right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it was, I think it was, and I'll probably misquote this and get in so much trouble. We'll have to erase this from the recording, but I think it's Donald Norman in the, in the design of everyday things, right? He talks about the design of a door and a door handle and applying the consistency uh, rubric, you know, imagine if door handles were shaped differently and on different sides of the door um, in, you know, in, uh, in the same pair of doors, like 
people would utterly fail. Like they would, at the very least, you would you piss them off seriously. <laughs> but uh, it, it's a good it's a good uh, it's a good thing to achieve because at its heart, it's a, it's a re- requisite thing because at its heart, people will only listen to you or they will only observe and study your object, listen to your object, or read your object if they trust you. Mm. Right? They trust you. So clarity's good, but ultimately it's trust. I mean, it goes to what the Aristotle's try, you know, triune um, approach to con- persuading people, right? Pathos, logos, and ethos. And those are, you know, you, you only trust a speaker or a communicator to the degree that they are, you are convinced that they are trustworthy. And how are they trustworthy? Well, ethos would be they have a good heart. Right, they they're, they they intend good for you, and logos would be what they can think in a straight line. They can literally reason. There we get the word logic, right? Mm. And <laughs> pathos, they 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 have a um, they 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 have your best interest at heart. Ethos is more like they want to do good things or ethical things, right? Um, and anyway, if you get all three of those nailed in product design or in communications design, people are more likely to listen to you. That's the way. Yeah, that's that's one way to think about it. And so you've been hard at work at Invisible trying to implement these products, uh, or trying to implement these 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 principles. Uh, what has been the main barrier? Because for for that consistency piece seems such a difficult thing because you have so many different stakeholders that are involved in this process. How have you managed to figure out how to do this at Invisible? Yeah. So you presume that I have figured it out. I think that's probably a false. False conclusion or presumption, but um, it you know it's like I'm a very small rudder on a very big ship, and uh, and I'm not the only rudder either. Obviously, to further mangle an already bad metaphor, um, but I think the idea is right that it's a big ship. It, there there's a lot of software, a lot of lines of code that we have running. Those those will be what we refer to as our product, um, and at this point, it's not even clear that who our users are. Right. So if you say, well, I'm creating um, I'm creating a door for my dog to get out of the house. That's a very different thing than I'm creating a door for um, my grandmother to get out of the house. Um, the 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 understanding who your users are is, is the first prerequisite for um, beginning to suggest a solution for them or to understand their problems in order to suggest a solution. Right. Obvious, like naive stuff here. But at Invisible, you have a lot of different pieces of software. You have them developed by well-meaning, very bright, very energetic people for eight years, I guess it is now. And um, just trying to understand that and then trying to elucidate who are the users that that actually, objectively, in reality, are trying to use our stuff. And um, what signal do we have on how well we're succeeding? And then you can turn to the question of like, well, why are we not succeeding if we're not succeeding? And you say, well, let's say that it hypothetically is a lack of consistency. They don't know where to click screen to screen because we move the button around or something like that. Or we communicate in strange language in different places. Well, both of those happen to be true. Um, how are we going to tackle that consistency at scale? You have thousands of lines, thousands, hundreds of thousands of lines of code. Um, you know, how are you going to attack that at scale? Well, of in the last 15 years or so, um, the technology has gotten to the point where we can express design decisions in in a system or in systems of design decisions. And we call those design systems. 
And those, if implemented by engineering, will give a level of consistency. But that's just like a starting point. So anyway, um, how do we do it? Uh, part of it is a lot of learning, a lot of discovery, a lot of um, wrestling with in-the-moment fires that have to be put out, right? But keeping your eye, setting your eyes on a goal, and um, one of those intermediate steps toward the goal is to implement a design system. So I think by the end of this week, for example, we have to have, or we plan to have a um, uh, first big component of that, a uh, second big component of that in place. Um, so anyway, that's that's a little bit of it. Mm -hmm. And I would love to talk about this from a, from a, to go more, maybe even more technical, this design system. Uh, what is a design system? Great. So when you want to make a piece of software, okay, um, you, you're, you're, and it's going to be used by people. There is software that's not used by people. Let's be clear on that point. So this presumes that we're talking about software that's used by people. Um, people have fingers and eyeballs and, and not all those eyeballs function the same way and not all those fingers function the same way. And, and so there's a, there's a subset of interactions that, that are standard for software. It also kind of depends on whether users are using mice to to issue those commands or make those interactions. Are they using their their actual fingers like we do on our phones? Mm -hmm. Are the screens being held at you know three three feet away by my hand? And are they small? But are they also at four times normal density like like the Retina displays? Um, and so are really especially clear and super bright. Or are we talking about you know two and a half feet to my display monitor, which is a you know a stand, run of the mill like Dell monitor that has uh, the left half is brighter than the right half. And, and these are not like weird hypothetical situations. These are actual, very common situations. Um, all that said, there's that there's that question of the viewport, right? Through which I'm going to receive information from the system and the the interfaces uh, that through which I'm going to touch the system or issue my input. So that might be a mouse, a keyboard, and then the digital representation of those inputs, which might be things like text boxes, check boxes, buttons, menus, right? All the apparatus, the furniture that we are just kind of take for granted and are familiar with all the time. So I guess in a one design system we did recently, I did recently had, I think, 45, approximately 45 different components. And material design, those components would be things like buttons and checkboxes and labels and, um, you know, um, disclosures, accordions, you know, all kinds of different things that are used to shape the responses of the system, right, the product, to its human counterpart, communicate the information it needs to communicate and expose itself appropriately or afford appropriately places for the human to respond to it okay and um and so you have a bunch of different components that I, like i was saying it's about 45 maybe and those 45 components each have different states so for example you look at your browser you look at a you look at a button and you move your mouse toward that button at a point it crosses over a boundary where the button responds and shows that you're hovering it right so it's going to change color um, you may be able to change themes and go dark mode, right? Uh, you may be able to uh, represent different levels of urgency on a button. Uh, so an emphatic coloration, for example, or a warning coloration or a detrimental coloration. And so for the simple button, you may it is very common that you would have hundreds of variations in state. And if those are not all rigorously designed, mm -hmm handed in a blueprint to an engineer and the engineer then rigorously and carefully implements those things, you end up with a lot of design decisions 
on your buttons scattered out. You know, you have thousands of them through your product that are kind of depending on what the engineer at the moment thought or the product manager at the moment thought. And so you end up with this kind of this ooze of inconsistency and, and unprofessionalism, right? Um, that kind of spreads through applications that don't have all those decisions made in a systematic way mm. and that rest in a systematic way. So you got to, first of all, make those decisions. They're design decisions. And they are things like colors and fonts and different weights of different fonts and different sizes of different fonts for different uses and um, the roundness of your button's corners, like a radius um, and the, the, the thickness of an outline and the color of the outline. So you're talking about thousands and thousands of little values, right? Little little details that um, actually, whether you want to or not, if you're making digital product, are being made. Yeah. Now, you're making them. You may be making them like for crap, uh, <laughs> which is kind of what we've been doing for the last eight years. But um yeah. So anyway, it, I, I hope that gives a little bit of the scope and the and the and the the composition of what a design system is, and um, and then you know you just realize, hey, that sounds like a big deal. Yeah, it is, and it's difficult to implement. Like it's difficult to adopt one when you've got like let's say six products or five products like we do. Um, they're already written. They're already in the hands of customers, you know, and employees. And and how do you get from here to there? That's a, mm -hmm. itself a challenge. It's really fun. Mm -hmm. And so this is wild. It's so interesting because we have these six, five or six products that are already built that have already had all these design design decisions. And of course, it's way easier if you're just starting from the beginning to do this really well, and then you can build off of that foundation. But if that foundation isn't there, which it often isn't with startups, uh, then it's like instead of like a small little dinghy that you're trying to try trying to navigate, you've now got this giant cruise ship that you're trying to navigate. Um, and so what are the, some of the differences in terms of scale? Like, like, so this design system that you built, how different is it in the fact that we have software already in production being used by different people rather than just starting from scratch, like whole different company creating this system out of the blue, what's the difference in terms of implementing these things at scale? Oh man. Well, it, it depends quantified how, right. Or, or let me try and qualify it at least, which is. Um, you can go out to, uh, anybody could say, Hey, we're going to, we're going to write a piece of software today. And you could go out and you could, you could download any number of already extant, right? Well-designed, well-implemented design systems. Okay. Mm -hmm. and one of those would be Google material design. Um, and, and that is, uh, is good. There's, uh, there's, there, there are hundreds actually. Um, and, uh, is another famous one was uh, was founded by Alibaba, uh, famous uh, Asian um, commercial interest. And then you have another one, which is Adobe Spectrum. And then you have another one, Atlassian Design System. And then you have another one, Salesforce Lightning. And you have another one, which, you know, it goes on and on and on. You do genuinely have a lot of options for just going out and picking one. Okay. So you can go out and pick one and you start writing code today. And by and large, it's, you don't have to do a lot of retrofitting. Now, those design systems may not look like your company and they may not, but they will, they should be consistent in how they look, right? So if you think of it, so let me give you an example. Material design is very colorful. It's by and large, very large, meaning on the screen, if you look at it for web applications, it, it typically is fat. And that is because I, I believe that, and I think I could demonstrate it. That is because material design began to service Android 
which is a mobile device. And if you look at buttons on a web app and buttons on a mobile device, they are really different. The ones on the mobile device are very much larger, typically. Tabul tables like tabular data are rendered on larger, fatter tables. They're more user-friendly. And that's the other aspect of material design. Material design, as opposed to, for example, to Adobe Spectrum, is really targeted to a consumer, like the broadest imaginable user base. The whole world, all applications for all types of devices for the whole world, that's Google Design's ab ambition. Right? That's Google Material Design's ambition. Mm -hmm. Adobe Spectrum is doing, if you're familiar with uh, like products like uh, like um, Adobe, like Adobe Photoshop, uh, Illustrator, InDesign, Premiere, um, you know, After Effects, and they have a huge collection of them. They're all expert applications. Very, very different, right? Very different. This is not mom and pop, like ordering stuff from DoorDash. This is, um, this is a, you know, an expert who is probably looking for certain things that experts uniquely seek, which are lots of data as possible on the workspace, right? So they're tolerant of very small, uh, very, very small sizes uh, in text and in um, affordances like buttons and switches mm -hmm. and things like that. Um, so they're very different, but you could download these, pick one that's you know suitable to you and you're off to the races and you're done. I mean, one day you're writing, a, you're writing an app and an app looks great and it works great and it's consistent and you're done. Now, when you adopt a design system, oftentimes you're adopting a whole technology stack. So for Google Material Design, just to continue with that one, right? In the early days, you had to have, um, you actually had to make some very significant decisions about how you're going to use data in your application, right? You had to use Angular. Nowadays, it's React. People want to use React. Well, actually, it's gone beyond that. And now they use web components, right? And and so Google has actually implemented a React has an, a React material implementation and a web components implementation, and um, and so you have to make some technical decisions that fit with your you know fit with the technology you want to use from the front end, mm. um, and uh, and so those are considerations as well. And then ultimately, you're probably going to want to customize it to look and feel like your application. In our case, just to get practical now. One of the best things was that engine, our engineering partners, when I came on in, I think it was May, um, our engineering partners uh, were willing and, and the organization had reached a point where they understood the need for adopting a third-party design system. Mm. It's not that we can't make it look and feel like we need it to, but the more important thing is consistency. And the more important thing is being able to implement efficiently, right? All of those hundreds of design decisions are not being onesie twosie picked off by you know twenty five engineers and maybe implemented correctly, but they're done. And and so the our engineering partners at Invisible decided, yep, we're going to go with Material Design. Um, and that was more important for to me, I think, because it's better for the company uh, in in the short and long term than, for example, saying, hey, wait a minute, our software is really expert software. So why don't we use Adobe Spectrum and then wage the technological debates, blah, 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 blah. That's not as nearly as important as like being in sync and having a way forward. And so very quickly, and this is very different than Bridgewater where I was before, where we actually had to build it all from scratch mm. because of the, 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 just a different organization, different body of software, different criteria, blah, blah, blah. In this case, we were able to start right away 
And we are now in the middle of a, of a, a project to replace all of the old custom components in our software mm. with standard components. Mm. Right? So the next step would be we then begin to drive the custom, we'd be put in, in place the wiring or the the apparatus, the, the, the facility for customizing it. That we are now, the design team is working on that right now. Oh, interesting. So, so you, so everything was custom components and then you got it standardized and now then you're building the process to then customize what needs to be customized. That's right. Without jettisoning, right. Without breaking the standard components. That's right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. And I was going to ask you that question about the expert software versus the consumer software. Cause it's so interesting for me being a consumer for so long and, and going into these pieces of software uh, that, could be expert or just could be poorly designed. Um, and it seems like from my understanding, from my naive understanding that I thought that enterprise software was poorly designed because you had to design consumer software so easily. Uh, and so I just thought that enterprise software was just default poorly designed because it didn't have that same incentive uh, to design it really well because you're, you're, you know, it's all employees who are like, who are paid to do this job and other than consumers who only have it. <laughs> It's like a small time window to 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 be have attention, but then you, I think it was actually in your talk of a couple of months ago. Then you entered this this idea in my head, which is that the that it's the softwares are designed for experts because experts can do a lot more things with the software. What what is that relationship? Is there anything to, in, to that idea that the incentives are just different in terms of enterprise software, so it's less well designed than in consumers because consumers just need that immediate. Like it has to be used by everyone and therefore really, really simple. How much of that is that real? So, so absolutely brilliant point and 150% true. Yes. It's more true than even I think you're articulating. Mm. The, the what's at play with consumer software, right? Is not only a different kind of user, but the exposure to market dynamics. Mm. Okay which are absolutely brutal. And, and, and if they are allowed to run, will become by and large fully efficient. That is to say that the less, the lower quality um, solution in the market will cease to exist, mm -hmm. right? That product, which is less capable of giving the customer what the customer needs in the shortest possible time frame, mm -hmm. will vanish. And when you are, so first and foremost, you are inured or you are, you are protected from, you are walled off from that dynamic. Yeah. Instead of like you having to be friendly, um, you've locked your friends in the basement. <laughs> and that's exactly, yeah. that is exactly what enterprise software is. And I've designed it both. I've designed both. I've had apps in the, in the, in the, in the app store, for example, and on Android store. So um, as well as doing really, really intense uh, internal apps. Now, the other thing is, yeah, sure. Consumer user is basically different, first, in that they're paying money and they can go away. Secondly, that typically, although not in every case, right, because you have expert consumers, um, you know, you might, you might, when you speak of consumer software, be speaking of someone who needs to understand it immediately. Mm -hmm. It is self-evident. And the distance between impulse and gratification um, has to be as short as possible. And as obvious as possible, right? 
And, and that's a, those are criteria, performance criteria that just don't apply in a lot of the enterprise software, right? Mm -hmm. uh, in our case, our users are often, most often, uh, I would say most often in our case are employees, right? And, um, and so they kind of have to use the software. They also are pleasantly disposed toward us. Um, at least they give us the benefit of the doubt and they want to help us and they understand the exigencies of making the company productive and efficient, which may not include holding a consumer bar on our software. Mm. It's, just, it's just not like if you're a partner, you own stock in this company and you see the company doing something adverse to its own interests, you're displeased to the degree that our users own like own stock and they see us uh, attending to business not attending to what they might perceive as frivolity or you know self-indulgence they're pleased mm -hmm. but that's not where we are mm -hmm. where we are is that our users are pleasantly disposed to us they are partners but they are realizing that the the accretion of, of technical debt the accretion of ux debt ui debt like bad design in the product um, is at the point now where it is starting to cut against our commercial interests. Mm. All right. Our viability as a company is, is we are beginning to recognize because we're beginning to feel it hard mm. is a function of our utility, the utility of our products to our clients. Mm. Bad design products are less useful than good design products, well-designed products. Right. Mm. So, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Does that answer does that? That yes. helps. Throw... Yes, and uh, space for maybe like seventeen more questions, which we can go further into. But uh, just based on the principles of reality, we can only go with one. Um, uh, well, one at this time. I'm sure we can keep on going. Uh, so this enterprise software is so interesting because uh, there's the expert piece as well, and I imagine that there's so much complexity that we're trying to deal with at Invisible and with all the work that we're trying to put into this app that we're going to design expert software as well. Um, how does that, how is that starting to, that that idea that we need to fit a whole bunch of information into this product to deal with all these different use cases, how is that informing your strategy? Great. So having the ability to adapt our software, to, to modify the design of our software, okay? That's a, that's a superpower, but to get that, to do that, in other words, to be able to do that across all your products, you need a system. Mm -hmm. And so the first thing to get to that superpower is to get a system in place, all right? Mm -hmm. But we know, for example, that once that system is in place, one of the first things that I we will, we will pursue is a higher degree of density of data and a better um, responsivity to the, to, the, to the viewport of the user. So if we know the user screen is small, we adjust the view dynamically to give them what they need to see more often than not. That's not done now. Although we have begun to take steps where we can, as we are swapping out, for example, the table control header, the controls uh, for our tables. Um, one of the things we was being done that was being done was affording or indicating a filter on a column only. So in other words, the user would know that um, a, a, a call, the table was being filtered or reduced by virtue of an icon on the column header. Mm. So the first cell at the top of the column. The problem with that is, is that columns regularly go out of view. And so now how do you know? <laughs> when the column is, is out of view, how do you know what is affecting that table? What is filtering the table? Is anything filtering the table? 
So what do I do? I scroll to the right. Well, you will actually see in recorded scenarios with our users, they do. They scroll to the right on these wide tables with many columns. In the new or the replacement of the table controls, we provide the access to uh, the information of what's filtering the table all the time. Yeah, interesting. Whether or not you're viewing the column or your screen's too small that you can't see the column, or perhaps you've even hidden the column, which you have that capability too. So um, our tabular views, the density of our views, the responsivity of our views, that's, that's high on the strategic priorities list for design once we have the ability as we have the ability, because we already do it in some places, like I just indicated, um, as we have the ability to um, to adapt the system, evolve the system's design, um, we will we will approach those things most aggressively. One other one that we get asked for all the time is a dark mode. You say that sounds frivolous. Well, actually, <laughs> software has people looking at it all the time. Yeah, and their ability to look at it all the time without fatigue or their ability to look at it yeah, without fatigue yeah. um, is, is money. They actually depend on it for their mm -hmm. life. And that's why you see a lot of applications, even now the browsers themselves and the operating systems themselves provide for that dark mode. Currently we're just a blaze with white, like, and maybe people like that. And there are a lot of, there's a real management culture actually, or there's a, there's a real design culture in management uh, that is insensitive to, or it does not perceive or valorize the needs of the expert user on the end. And they're like, well, I've Excel, my Excel has always been white. My tables have always been white. The West wall street journal is white, right? <laughs> I'm kind of painting with a broad brush there, but I have experienced that um, consistently throughout my career. And it does make a lot of sense that that feature is is really important to people who use our software all the time, our products all the time. And uh, we are prioritizing it soon. So many things we could go on. Uh, I want to kind of put a put a little uh, bookmark uh, that I would love to talk about AI and how all this is going to change or maybe not change, um, whether you're bearish and bo or uh, bullish on the ability for non-technical people to generate code and front-end displays and, and, and bring in all this design using LLMs and stuff. But we'll put a pin on that because I have more tests, uh, more specific questions about invisible and how what we're doing, um, particularly in relation to either user testing or how many how, mu how many of our users are using mobile to interact with our app? Can they use mobile to interact with our app? You know, that's a good question. Um... Let's step back and say um, the answers I give you to some degree are going to be contingent upon my having a reliable signal mm -hmm. on our users. Okay. And I would say invisible does not right now have a very good user research function. Okay. Right. A very well-developed and mature signal that's reliable on our users. That's not right. what it once was. It, it, it was worse. Um, we don't have a lot of people using mobile. Um, mobile is really optimal for getting synthesis views, right? So for example, if your application is telling you um, a high level statistic, one number, right? So think about your stock, your stock app in, uh, or your stock widget on I iOS, okay? Mm -hmm. Man, that's made, I'm on the go. I need contemporaneous information and I need synthesis. Yeah. I need contemporaneous synthesis, like, yeah. ooh, really current synthesis. Well, that is suited to a, uh, not only to a mobile 
but to a even a body enhancement or or even more you know like other so a phone would be mobile right but then watch was one of it was the first time that you're actually getting a device that's always in touch with you that's always touching your skin right it's even more proximate it's even more intimate and um and basically humans have no uh limit to their appetite for the instant the the instantaneity i guess would be the word or the the the, the immediacy of yeah gratification and are willing to let your your interfaces become more and more intimate to them to achieve that goal okay and um and so boy yeah mobile if we're doing synthesis and they want it current or instantly that's that's going to happen but our applications don't have a lot of that capability yet mm. our applications are like long running operations tasks they expose tasks for agents to do that take large tables that have forms, right? And none of that works really well on someone, someone in the engineering org is probably going to tell me in a well-meaning tone of voice that th we do have mobile, but it does not work well yet for ma the majority of our use cases, I would say. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and that leads to the question, this user testing is so interesting because I've been trying to come at this user testing question from the knowledge management angle, which is, uh, well, how, like, because knowledge management has a little bit of design to it as well. And it's interesting because our implementation of knowledge management isn't actually the traditional implementation of knowledge management, which is actually a step back, which traditional knowledge management is understanding, how, not trying to actually do the work of knowledge workers because that work is so intimate. So we're not actually manipulating the work and trying to, which which I am doing as a part of Cosmos, but that's a whole other separate, separate step. Um, uh, but knowledge management is more just trying to figure out within a larger organization, how do you spark implicit knowledge from getting outside of people's heads, out, out of things, but as a part of this cosmos, we're actually designing information flows on Notion and trying to connect information between different softwares and stuff. And so I've been trying to figure out how to do user testing on that, how to, how to test people, uh, test how people are actually using the systems on Notion that we're designing or test them on different software. And it sounds like you, maybe in your previous roles, have done a lot of user testing. You're setting up the, 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 the eventual goal to have this at Invisible. Anything you can let me know about what the essential elements of user testing are to figure out like how people actually use these products like what are the things that you must do in order to figure out user testing oh man well <clears throat> holy moly that's a big, that's a big one uh, but we can start talking about it. so yeah so what are the uh first of all you you literally have to you have to commit that it's a priority uh-huh um, a lot of people pay lip service to it, but under pressure, I would say most people that I've observed, including Invisible, um, revert to what do our product managers imagine, or for that matter, to be fair, designers, or to be fair, engineers, what do we imagine that the user wants? Not just go out and ask them what they want, but like imagine, I'm going to imagine what they want. And that's a kind of arrogance that, that can be really expensive. Mm. Um, really expensive. Understanding, and when I say wants, I almost mean uh, in the older older definition of the term want. What is what does the user need? Right, want used to mean a lack or a need for something. Mm. And and who are my users? So the first and most fundamental thing to do is to have a resolve, a commitment 
to figure out and base in objective reality mm. who my users are mm. and then what their needs actually are. Like, what do they want? Just getting there, you're way ahead of the crowd, in my opinion. Yeah. But how do, you, are, how do you define what they want versus what they say they want? Yes. Great. So <laughs> how do you get a, cred a credible read on what they actually want or need? Um, you ask more than one person, uh, right? You, you, you just, you do the, the, the thing that professional uh, researchers or statisticians are good at doing, which is removing signal from noise or removing noise from the signal mm. and debiasing it. Right. How do you do that? Well, there, it depends on how you're asking the question, but you, look at it. Um, I think it's uh, Nielsen. I think it, one of his first heuristics is for, for usability is about um, uh, being uh, reflecting status to the user, right? And and mm -hmm. comes in, in uh, Nielsen is also known for um, how do I how do I assess whether or not that's happening? Mm -hmm. He says, I believe the number is in five user interviews, like five qualitative interviews where with a user, an actual user walking through your application, let's say, to see whether or not it evokes status effectively. Um, you suss out like 95% of the of the errors and 95% of the of the problems. Okay. You're on the hunt for problems. Just sit down with the user and watch them use your application. Mm -hmm. Sit down with the user and watch them use it. Of course that presumes that you know who your users are and that you have access to them. Fight to get it. Fight to get that knowledge, fight to get that access, commit to it, to ground, uh, you know, a set of observations in objective reality. Not my preference, not my, not my conviction, not my strong hypothesis, but in the actual people. Um, and um, I, I'd say, so resolve, like corporate intestinal fortitude, um, to find out who your users actually are and what they actually need. Um, and and do that by first just sitting down and watching them and talking to them. Yeah. Mm. After that, you can get into things like, oh, how do we do quantitative? What are quantitative approaches and what are qualitative approaches? And in the quantitative approaches, how do I debias them? And how do I, you know, how do I properly serve them up at scale? So there are services like, um, well, there are services like userbrain.com, which is one example of a user research um, SaaS product, right? Which is going to allow you to perform certain kinds of studies or tests that will yield certain kinds of data, maybe qualitative, maybe quantitative. There are there are um, uh, there are other ones that provide, for example, eye tracking studies and focus group studies. Those are more, uh, you know, focus group studies more qualitative. An eye tracking study could be quantitative. And then how do you scale those things up, right? I mean, you can get down into the engineering of user experience research, but at its heart, it is a question of resolve or priority. Mm -hmm. It is a question of knowing who your user is in objective reality. Mm -hmm. And it is a, a business of focusing on their needs, their problems, okay? Mm -hmm. And um, and sitting down and actually observing them, talking to them. Uh, you, you just do that, man. You're so far ahead of the ball. Like, mm -hmm. like so far ahead of the crowd there. You're, we don't even do that well. Now there are tools that we that we have recently put in place. For example, instrumentation that allows us to have some view, albeit an imperfect view, right? Like some actual view, some quantitative information on who is using our applications. This would be mm -hmm. uh, this would be a uh, a tool for instrumenting the software, like Datadog. Okay, that's one.
Hmm. Um, and uh, so that that's a big help, you know. But but that's just going to serve up, for example, a bunch of data you asked it asked it ask it to c- collect. So for example, one of the first things I did when I came here, I was like, I'm looking at I'm auditing all our applications. I'm like, do we know what size screens our users have? Mm-hmm. They're like, no. Mm-hmm. I'm like, can we figure that out? They're like, yeah. Let's just use Datadog. So we hooked it up. Um, engineer by the name of Taha did the actually hooked it up and said, and we said, he said, hey, Ans, here's the data. Here's here are the user screens. Turns out it's like a quarter of the size of the ones that designers were actually designing, right? Yeah. Not surprising. And you'll end up with designs that feel cramped. You'll end up with designs that put important data completely out of view, which make them less useful for the user. So. And that was just static. And so now the now the website is responsive to those different screens. Mm, not not yeah. completely. Um, remember, we have like five. I think five products. It depends yeah. how you parse. Depends how you parse. But but um, it is more responsive in some places than in others. Mm-hmm. Like I'll give you an example. Like I just saw a card come through yesterday that um, was having tables actually snap to full width when the user sized their browser window. Mm. Uh, that's crazy. You would expect that to have been done from the get go, but um, nope. And you know, had to be called out and and um, had to be tackled as an engineering, you know, task. And they did it. Um, so it's it's kind of a it's kind of like. <laughs> fixing a bunch of little problems before the, the house burns down, you know, fixing a bunch of little fires before the house burns down. So interesting. It's the startups. I mean, with everything in life, everything in life is way harder uh, than we set out thinking it might be. Um, and a startup, particularly a startup that's going through hyper growth, just like every little thing is so like you're dealing with lots of people all. I mean, one of the great things is that we're a lot of, there's a lot of alignment. Um, but at the same time, there's just like, so many problems um and uh it's just wild that we're in there we're in the battle we're in the arena as the twitter people are talking about right now um so there's a question i want to i want to do the ai thing because i think it's so yeah let's do, let's go for ai uh, yeah yeah are you bearish are you bullish on the idea that very soon um non-technical people are going to be able to create code effectively, cheaply, efficiently, uh, and that includes design-enabled code as well. Like, do you think that software is about to become commoditized or do you think that it's so hard that it won't happen? Well, uh, this is a great question because this is this is actually, um, I've wanted to do like, a, like <laughs> I wanted to go to grad school to work on a, on a on a degree in, in ch- chasing this particular thing, which is can can we apply generative models to the the compositions of UI and the testing of UI solutions? Mm-hmm. And I, because I I do think it's totally doable. In fact, you see it happening in the primary tools of the trade. So most designers are not code writers. Okay, just we'll we'll we'll, we'll start here. And we use tools like Adobe Photoshop. We use tools like Figma. We use tools like Adobe XD mm-hmm. um, and others, right? But they're all visual. They're all tactile. They're they're not they're not typically exposing code to graphic designers or UI designers or UX designers. And yet, 
the UI that makes up those that, the, the sorry the, the 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 visual kind of features of the applications are their code they're mm. defined code and um and so it is entirely possible that the UIs of these tools themselves become generated at some level they mm. become generated at some level and that natural language processing capabilities are exposed in the UIs for communicating with the user, even non-technical, non-coding users like designers. Now I have written code. So yeah. when OpenAI was first coming uh, into its popular, you know, its recent popularity, and they exposed the Codex API, which was the the co um, the actual um, the beta for um, generating code right with with mm. open i wrote some of that code to bring it into figma one of our one of our principal tools and with that we could do a lot of generative design mm. by um having it write code for us based on prompts that we would give it and then we would run the code immediately in the same environment so in other words figma runs in the browser figma runs with javascript the a the a uh the ai um interfaces are javascript or capable of javascript and so we simply could ask make it possible to ask uh, for code to do certain functionality in within the design tool in JavaScript. When we get it back, we then execute it in the browser and the design tool does what OpenAI told it to do. I don't know if that makes sense, but the answer is yes. So it has been possible for designers to, to generate UI, to do things in their tools with AI. Um, uh, for probably a year, two years, maybe. And um, but now you'll see first class features within the AI, within the tools. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, Figma made a deal with uh, a company called Diagram, which uh, is building an AI assistant for designers. So it will do things, for example, like interface to, uh, directly with Midjourney. To generate images, right? So you you create a website. You're like, give me a bunch of placeholder images of vegetables because you're doing a website for uh, a grocery store, right? It goes out to Midjourney, gets the the imagery, loads it into the design right away. Done. Uh, it goes further. Give me a give me an icon, um, and you can do this in Figma now. Like these things are possible right now in your design tools, and designers are using these things wow. a lot. Wow. Right. You can do all the text generation stuff. You can do the NLP conversation with the uh, with the tooling um, for for generate you know for creating UI. And now you can even say, um, "Hey, I need an icon for a company um, uh, called Lightning, and uh, whose owner is named Zohar, and um, give me that logo, and it'll give you logos." And you can do things even more interesting, which is now the the in the in tool or the in Figma capabilities go so far as to watch you and know as a designer what kind of UI you're making. Uh. Because remember, UIs for SaaS applications are all defined in HTML, so they're all text. That's the connection you need to make, right? Text generative AI is simply looking across a hyper dimension space mm. for the statistically next most likely text that's mm. going to come after the text you've asked it like you've, you've given it 
Mm. So that just means all that is to say, right, is that it's a hyper powerful Siri autocomplete. <laughs> right? That's basically. I mean, that's 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 uh, maybe that's that's a little broad, but that, I, that that's by and large why, for example, you get things like hallucinations and uh, other forms of inaccurate data when you get returns from ChatGPT. But anyway, if UIs are all expressed in text, and they are. And that text is able to to be um, analyzed and generated by an AI, which it is. Then it is entirely possible that the AI could watch the designer building things, okay, designing Invisible's product, yeah, and suggest improvements to how the you need a thumbnail here. Why don't you do a row? Oh, I see you made a row of things. Do you want some more things? Like, do you want another set of rows? How many how many rows do you want? Do you want a page to do this? Do you want an action bar? Do you want to use a button here? All of these things are happening right now. So the old world of designers going in, having to understand, um, having to understand the 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 vast array of options for visualizing right points of interaction and patterns of interaction with users, in order to suggest what might be uh, a solution for a given design problem in the UI. Those times are changing mm. already. They're so, very different. Yeah. And so last few minutes, like what, and it may, may not be able to answer this question in the last few minutes, but uh, wh what does that do to the world? Because we've got this bicycle of the mind in front of us. Both of us have this bicycle of the mind in front of us. And the whole paradigm of the last 20 years has been to how to convert uh, all of these crazy contextual, like massive the amounts of data into ways that we can, like, as you were saying, fingers and eyes that can be understandable by our fingers and eyes. And not pretty soon we're going to have an agent that is able to do our bidding in ways that are maybe superior to any of us, even as experts. What does that do to software? And what does that do to design? What does that do to coding? Yeah, I think, I mean, hmm. Well, from just observing it in action right now, um, uh, this is a good question. It tempts people, at the very least, it tempts people to be lazy, right? Because there's a huge swath of, I used to be an English teacher way back when, when I was in grad school, I studied English, right? And um Students don't want to write papers. So why wouldn't they just go get a paper from ChatGPT? And absolutely, they try to do that 100%. So what's wrong with that? Well, because ChatGPT can only remix, basically. And, and actually, the algorithms have a, an interesting aspect of randomization to make them feel different. But they are basically just remixing what has been written. They cannot create, they cannot generate new ideas. They cannot, they cannot attest the veracity of any particular claim within any of the generated text. Mm -hmm. That's why, for example, you ask uh, lawyers in New York not long ago, asked uh, the, the AIs to generate text uh, for a legal brief, right, for the judge. And, and it cited journals that didn't exist. And they got it, they got disciplined for it. Um, you can't, you can't, the, the AIs are not like, at least now, are not able to create new ideas, like genuinely new ideas. They're not, they're, there's not real creativity there, real understanding there, all right? 
And then that applies in different levels at different points in the, you know, in different industries um, differently, which is not a fancy way of trying to avoid the question, really. But to say that the, the difficulty of thinking clearly and creating new things is perennial. Mm-hmm. Um, understanding what is true is to some degree a, a matter of calculation. But it is all also a, a directed matter of calculation. In other words, it's it's calculation over a rational model, a semantic model that expresses true statements like axioms, which build on, you know, axioms, which, you know, bring you to higher order uh, levels of understanding. Now, there are AIs and uh, that that att- that have sought to achieve that sort of level of understanding, but even they will not they will not provide a desire so every bit of every bit of action that we take is grounded out not in understanding Mm. but it's grounded out in desire human desire is what fuels what we do why we do it understanding is is helpful understanding and rationalization is is useful but ultimately we do what we want to do i believe I believe just anthropological, like you know, philosophical anthropology. That's my philosophical anthropology. Mm-hmm. Admittedly, but we do what we want to do, and computers don't have a sense of desire. You can give them a target, right? You can give them a a goal and point them in that direction, and they will compute as fast as they can to that end, and uh, hope you know probably will give you a lot of utility. But I still want my kids to desire good things, you know, and to desire to achieve good things. And no amount of AI enhancement is going to provide that. Yeah. Yeah. It's just wild that whatever we do in the technological realm, it does not get at our most fundamental layers. Um, Like we can change the window dressing as much as we want, but that core center of our being is not affected. It doesn't seem like it's affected by at any great degree by any of the window dressing and that, that there's always that deeper layer. Um, which is why it's so interesting that Invisible is a humanist company. And I'm, I imagine that's part of the reason why you're you're here. It's definitely part of the reason I'm here as well is that there's that understanding of the human layer of technology, which is missing in a lot of places that I grew up. Yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah. I think I think the thing that one aspect of it that really troubles me and I think sits at the heart of, that's why I started with the temptation question mm-hmm. or the temptation comment, Stuart, is, is that we have a habit of as humans of being willing, far too willing to delegate or to the degree that we abdicate mm-hmm. things we should mm-hmm. not, yeah. right? To machines that we think will cover, that will take care of it. The first example of, of what you might say, um, super, superhuman tyranny. Uh-huh. Uh, one of the first examples of that would be um, the Soviet machine. The Soviet machine um, in the in the archipelago, uh, which, despite the fact that the originator of the of the of the oppression and and tyranny, the enslavement of the populace, right, Stalin dies, it continued. Mm-hmm. Why did it continue? Mm-hmm. Because it was incarcerated. It was it was it was it was um, it was captured in a machine. It was captured in a bureaucracy with um, layers upon layers upon layers of insulation uh, of the of the really anti-human decisions to uh to the point where it, it, the the tyranny could be sustained over many decades right 
people kept getting sent to the, the concentration camps um, in the Gulag all over the Soviet Union, um, not because any one person thought it a good idea, but because this machine had been put in place, which made the decisions, the tiny little decisions, which in aggregate send your neighbor to his death in, you know, Novosibirsk. Um, and there was no reason for it to stop. We are willing to abdicate things we should not. Mm. When we do abdicate them mean death at a major scale to machines. Mm. Um, and that concerns me, our willingness to, to let them do things and to have information that they that really they should not have. Um, we're, we're, we're lazy, <laughs> lazy and ignorant. <laughs> and that, that might be the real existential risk uh, of, from this AI thing is just that the idiocracy that may may result. Yeah, that's a good word for it. That's right. Yeah. Well, Hans, thank you so much for coming on. I learned a huge amount of design and a lot of other things as well. So thank you so much. And uh, how can people who are listening to this find out more about you or find out what you're working on? Oh, uh, just contact me at uh, Hans at invisible.email or go to hansanderson.design. That's also a place that tells a little bit about my background. And um, thank you, Stuart. It's been a pleasure yeah. talking with you, man. Yeah, so much fun. Hey, thanks for tuning into Plain Sight, presented by Invisible. If you liked what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button and consider sharing with your network. And if you're interested in learning more about how Invisible helps teams cut costs and scale, visit our website at invisible.co. See you next time.